Welcome to another conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. If you're listening to this podcast, you may be at a crossroads or at least can see one in your future. Maybe you're considering retirement, semi-retirement, an encore career, or a pivot to a new life that may include a combination of different activities and pursuits. Any of those options will require reinvention of some sort. But how do you approach such a thing? How do you get from where you are today to where you want to go in that pivot ahead? My guest today has interviewed many people who have made successful pivots, as well as experts who have studied them. And she discovered that there's a predictable four-step sequence, four stages that all of them have in common. And that's very valuable to know before you approach your own. Joanne Lippman is the best-selling author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. She is a pioneering journalist and the author of the number one national bestseller, That's What She Said, about closing the gender gap. She was the first female deputy managing director at the Wall Street Journal, where she created the weekend journal and personal journal sections and oversaw the creation of the paper's Saturday edition. She was the founding editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Portfolio magazine, and she served as editor-in-chief at USA Today and chief content officer at Gannett. Under her editorship, she led these organizations to numerous awards, including six Pulitzer Prizes. She was a lecturer at Yale University's Department of Political Science and was the first distinguished journalism fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. She's also a contributor to CNBC. Joanne, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. So when you began interviewing people for your book Next who reinvented themselves and made a pivot in life, what surprised you? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise, for those who haven't read the book, it's Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And it is really about how do we navigate change in how we live, how we work, how we lead. And what's fascinating that I found when I did the reporting, so I was looking for people, I did hundreds of interviews with people who had gone through all kinds of different sorts of changes and pivots. So some were people who had reinvented careers, some people were post-retirement, some people were young. I interviewed people from their 20s through their 90s, and they went through different kinds of transitions. Some were professional, some were personal, some were people coming back from failure, some were people who had life-changing aha moments. The fascinating thing that I found that I did not expect was that when I kind of put it all together to synthesize what was going on here, they all described a process that they went through in this transition. And they used a lot of different words, but they were talking about exactly the same thing. And then when I went to the experts, which I I did a lot of the academic research I looked into, I spoke to psychologists, I spoke to neuroscientists, I spoke to management specialists, and again, different vocabulary. But when they walked through the process of change, they were talking about exactly the same set of stages that you go through. And tell us about that four-step process, those stages of reinvention that emerged. Sure. So I call it the reinvention roadmap. And the four steps are search, struggle, stop, solution. And I'll go through those real quick, and then we can kind of dig in if you would like. But the, the search, the first step. What's interesting about this, this is when you are collecting information, you're collecting experiences. You are accumulating knowledge, but the really cool thing about this step is you're sucking in all this information that will ultimately lead to a transition, except very often you're not aware of it. 
It's unintentional, which is so interesting. It's going to lead you somewhere unexpected. The second stage, this is the struggle. The struggle is when you start to disconnect from your previous identity, but you have not quite figured out the new identity where you are going to. We don't like to talk about this stage because it's really uncomfortable. It's kind of miserable, honestly. And when we go through it, we tend to think we're all alone and that we are the only people in the world going through this. Everybody else is on this glide path to success and only we are struggling. But the key here, and we will talk more about this, but the key here is to know that when you're in the midst of this struggle, you're not alone because everybody goes through it and you feel like you're standing still or you're stuck, but you're actually not. You're actually moving forward. But this stage can last for quite a while for some people. And often it doesn't end until you reach the third stage, which is the stop. So the stop is something that pulls you out of your routine. It could be something that you choose, like I quit my job or I retire, but it could also be something imposed on you, like I've lost my job or there's an illness or a divorce, or for that matter, a pandemic. It's something that pulls you away from your routine But what that does is it allows you to actually get perspective on all of these experiences and the struggle and all of the pieces that you've been sort of, that have been swimming around in your brain have a chance to coalesce. And that in turn leads you to that understanding of where you're going to go. And that leads you to that fourth and final step, which is the solution. It is where you are pivoting to. And which of those steps are most important yet perhaps underappreciated? Yeah, I mean, they're all important, but the one I am telling you, the book's only been out for a few weeks at this point, and I've gotten so much reader response to talking about the struggle. That struggle step is so important. And I think the reason why is because we don't tend to talk about it. So if you think about how do we talk about reinventions or pivots, we tell these stories, I call it the Cinderella myth. It it seems to be instant, it's overnight. And if you think about it, You're starting with literally Cinderella and the frog and the prince when you're a baby. By the time you're a teenager, it's Superman and Spider-Man. You grow up, you turn on the TV, it's American Idol or who wants to be a millionaire. It's instant. We don't talk about this kind of miserable struggle in the middle. So therefore, when we do go through it and everyone does go through it, and when we do, we feel like there's something wrong with us, that we have a problem. And it's such a damaging myth, this Cinderella myth. And I think the, the reason that so many people are responding so powerfully to talking about it is just we need to put it out there in the open. We need to understand this is, it's actually normal, it's healthy, and it's actually necessary for you to move through if you're going to pivot. And so anybody out there who's listening, who's feeling like they're in that struggle, they feel like they're stuck, first of all, you're not alone. And secondly, literally, you're making progress. You just don't feel like you're making progress, but you you actually are. So Joanne, how can people learn to get the most out of that struggle phase? Yeah, so I have in Next, I actually tease out a dozen strategies that I compile in the back of the book of things that you can do that are going to help you get through all four stages. And, and I'm not gonna give you all 12, but we could, we could talk about a few of the highlights. I mean. One of the ways to start, actually, and I I just wrote a piece in the New York Times about this, about the idea of thinking about your possible selves. Now, that's a psychological term, but essentially what it means is to imagine what you might be, what you could be, and to go beyond the daydream 
to take some sort of action possible self. So that means if you're interested, let's say in pivoting in a career, take a course or shadow someone, talk to you, do an informational interview, right? Don't just like sit with it and cogitate. You got to get out of your own brain. I'll give you a second one. This one I love, and it is called the expert companion. You want to find your expert companion and speak to that person. So an expert companion, I'm borrowing that phrase actually from trauma psychologists who I interviewed who work with trauma patients, who survivors who actually experience what's called post-traumatic growth. We all know about post-traumatic stress. This is people who actually can grow and find something positive in the wake of a, of a disaster. And these psychologists say that the survivor needs to talk to someone who can help them rethink their narrative. I think we all need an expert companion, all of us. And that person is someone who has an objective view of you, who can reflect back to you what your real strengths and talents are. And if you think about it, we all have sort of innate talents that very often we don't even recognize them because they come to us so easily. Or if we do recognize them, we tend to kind of diminish them because like, it seems like everybody can do that. We don't recognize how unique it is. So your expert companion can reflect back to you where your strengths are, what they see in you. And, and it, it's very often could be surprising to you, or it can certainly help you focus on where you want to pivot to. And by the way, the expert companion can be a coach like you. It could be as well. It could be a friend or a family member, but the key is that they're helping you. They're not actually telling you what to do, which is really important. They don't tell you, go do this. What they say is what I see in you is this. And that helps you in turn make your own decisions about where you want to pivot to. Appreciate both those tips. And that expert companion can really add a lot of value in seeing things that we're blind to, can really expand your idea of what those possible selves could be. And you mentioned possible selves. What can get in the way of imagining possible future selves? Yeah. I mean, look, the biggest issue we have is fear. We tend to sort of be in a lane and we are afraid to break out of whatever that lane is. And there's another myth that the book that, that I really explode in the book next. And that is something else that really holds us back. And it is this idea that so many of us grew up on that you have to have your goal in mind and you have to know exactly what it is. And then you have to work backwards and you have to plan every step of the way. And so many of the people I interviewed actually ended up in a very unexpected place. They had meandering paths, they had detours, and they ended up not where they expected to be, but somewhere else that was more fulfilling, actually. And so, but what hamstrings so many of us is we're afraid to even take that first step because we don't have the end goal in mind. Might be, I'm unhappy with my job, but I don't know where I want to go from here. Or it could be, I'm recently retired, and I still have tons of energy and lots to give, but I'm not sure what's the best way to, how do I process that? What do I do with that? So it's, it's so important to understand that you want to have an open mind about where your talents and experience could take you because it, take you, it could take you somewhere very different. Like one of my favorite examples I'll give you is a guy who I met who is a cattle farmer. But it turns out, after I met the cattle farmer, it turns out that the first 30 years of his career, he was a Harvard-trained economist at J.P. Morgan in London and New York City. And I said, how in the world did this happen? 
And he said, I certainly didn't like plan to be a cattle farmer. That was not my life goal. But what happened was when his kids were young, his family was young and he had this intense job and he bought this broken down old farmhouse just as a weekend getaway. And over the years, as they fixed up the farmhouse and spent their weekends there, he got drawn into the community and into the farming. Like he was leasing out, they they had some acreage. So he leased it out to a cattle farmer and then the cattle farmer died. And he's like, well, all they do is eat grass. I'll just buy his 16 cattle. <laughs> and then suddenly the 16 cattle turn into about a hundred cattle and a thousand cattle. But as he said, it was over a period of 20 years where he became intrigued by farming. And ultimately he had to make a choice. He hit his stop moment, which was, it, this was getting out of hand, right? They had to choose city life or farm life and farm life won. But, you know, it's interesting about the cattle farmer and so many others. It seems like such an extreme pivot. But when I brought that up to him, as well as to others who seem to have extreme pivots, they kind of looked at me like I was nuts because they said, as the cattle farmer said, look, everything that I used and learned and know as an economist is what I apply as a farmer. It's all about you got to know the supply chain. You got to know what your finances are. You've got to do your budgeting. You, every element he uses. And that's another thing that for people to keep in mind, and I heard this from everyone who reinvented their careers or their lives, they said nothing is wasted. Every They used everything. I mean, I'm, I met a woman who started out as an epidemiologist, accidentally got into sort of blogging about budget fashion, and she became sort of an accidental celebrity known as the budget fashionista, who would tell you about the great bargains you could find at Target. <laughs> and when I tracked her down recently, she's now an investor in Black-owned technology and Black-founded technology companies. And I said, okay, those are the three most different careers I could possibly imagine. And again, she said, you know what? It was all organic. And she walked me through how one actually morphed and led to the next to the next. And it made total sense. Again, nothing was wasted. That's a great point. And I now know that both economists and cattle farmers are data-driven. <laughs> and a lot of people tend to be data-driven in their primary careers, but there's other ways to make a pivot. I'm curious, what role can aha moments, which you mentioned earlier, play in making a pivot and what leads to them? Yeah, I, I love this. I have a whole chapter on aha moments and because I spoke to a number of people who had life-changing aha moments. In fact, I spoke to the two men who were behind the invention of Post-it Notes one of whom is now well over 90 years old and still an inventor, which is so cool. But the, these aha moments, I spoke to the neuroscientists because people will have these aha moments that feel exactly right and actually can lead to life-changing careers or life-changing moments. And it turns out that the reason aha moments feel correct is because they are, almost always. And the reason that they are correct is because they're actually an accumulation of and a combination of knowledge that you already have in your head. So if you think about like neuroscientists who study creativity, who have actually looked at brains when they have aha moments, they, they give you this word puzzle that is, that is intended. You can either, you can solve it analytically, but you can also, it's, it's like three words and you have to find a fourth word that matches. And sometimes you look at it and you have an aha moment. And what they found what happens with an aha moment is you actually need to turn off the executive function of your brain, the, the part of your brain that is corralling all your thoughts and keeping you on the straight and narrow path. And when you turn that off, 
all sorts of disparate thoughts, ideas, concepts, they can swim together in your brain, almost behind your back, right? And then they emerge and boom, that's your aha moment. The reason that, you know, you need to actually relax that part of your brain, which is why, if you think about it, where do you have your aha moments? Like in the shower or in the middle of the night or when you're exercising. There was a fascinating piece of research that was done where scientists looked at a group of physicists and a separate group of writers because they wanted to look at right brain and left brain types of people. And they had them keep a diary of when did they have their best ideas. And then they evaluated the diaries. And they found for both groups, for both of them, left and right brain, their best ideas came to them, not when they were working or focusing or staring at their computer, but when they were doing pretty much anything else. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be anything super glamorous, right? You don't have to be on vacation in Baja (laughs) to have your aha moment. Like somebody said, I had my best brainstorm when I was cleaning my house. Somebody else was commuting. Somebody else was like on the extra cycle. Like you just have to sort of turn off that executive function. And I love that so much because it makes so much sense. It really does. I'm curious, what tends to be different that you see in women's careers? And what can men learn from that? Yeah. So what's fascinating is I have a whole chapter in Next that I on what I call necessity entrepreneurs. And these are people who are squeezed out for one reason or another from the mainstream workforce. So very often, you know, we're talking about women, but also, you know, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and increasingly, and this is really important, increasingly baby boomers. Baby boomers are getting marginalized now because they're hitting that traditional retirement age. So even though so many of this generation are, we're healthy, we've got tons to offer, we're raring to go, but the opportunities are drying up or you're being told to like take a buyout or it's just, you're not valued any longer. And so these different marginalized groups very often out of necessity will become entrepreneurs. But there's some research on this that I found fascinating. This research was done on women's careers. And this researcher found, this is at Bowling Green State University, this researcher found that women's careers tend to go very similar through stages, just like the ones that I talked to. She has different terminology, but essentially the same stages I laid out. She calls that last stage, she calls it reinvention because so frequently women in particular end up needing to reinvent their careers. They've hit the glass ceiling or work is just not tenable. It's too inflexible, whatever reason, they're not getting opportunities. And so they tend to be very entrepreneurial. What she found though, that I love so much is that these people who do reinvent their careers tend to be drawn toward mission-driven organizations, purpose-driven kinds of work. And so once she said that, I'd I'd never really sort of crystallized that thought. But once she said it, I started seeing it everywhere. And I'm a journalist. And in my own field, I think about the very high profile journalists who are a bit ahead of me and generation wise. And, you know, people like Katie Couric, who built her career on hard news, but she now started a news organization that is really geared toward women. Mika Brzezinski from MSNBC, she started Know Your Value, which is all about having women actually be paid equitably. Sally Krawcheck, who ran two investment banks, 
started Elevest, which is all about helping women to invest their money, and Elevate, which is a nonprofit to help women with financial literacy. So you've got, it just makes so much sense. And I see this, there's a woman named Jane Veron, who I profile in Next, who I love, who actually quit the corporate world for quite a few years because she to raise her three daughters. And when she came back, she couldn't go back to her old corporate career, but instead she started a nonprofit that helps local businesses. And by the way, she was then elected mayor of Scarsdale. So she's now the mayor of Scarsdale. A lot of lessons there. Appreciate that. So as you mentioned, things happen in life and many life transitions can be reactive. What's your advice on how people can prepare to make a pivot proactively? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say you do want to take action. Well, first of all, I should say that people who pivot almost always what I call move before they move, right? They actually are on their way. And so one thing, if you want to make a pivot and you're kind of afraid, one thing to keep in mind is you've actually probably made more progress than you realize. You you probably have started on your way. It's that search stage that we were talking about. And almost everybody, because they've, they've got an interest or a hobby or a side hustle or something, they've, they've started. The other thing is you want to take small but iterative steps. So the idea is not, I'm going to quit my job today and tomorrow I'm going to be an astronaut. Right? It doesn't work that way. Remember that struggle, right? But And know that your path may be meandering and there could be some failures along the way. But if you take these small iterative steps, that helps you to get there. There's, I actually have a chapter on failure. And there was a, actually a Northwestern professor who walked me through. He's, he's a data scientist who studies failure, which is so cool. And he said, there is a way to fail successfully. And to fail successfully is you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. You fail and you tweak and you fail and you tweak and you fail and you tweak. And you focus on the process, not on the end goal. And a great example of that actually is the figure skater, Nathan Chen. So he's now been to two Olympics. The first one, he was on the Wheaties box and he was going to win the gold and it was a shoe in. It was all about the gold, the gold, the gold, the gold. And he went and he flamed out at the Olympics. He came back four years later. During that four years, he talked about he'd never, ever, ever talked, thought. He, the, the gold was not part of the process. The process was the process. Like he was there, he was working. He actually went to school the college during this time. And he just focused on tweak, 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 tweak every single day. And he came back and he won the gold. And he said it was just a completely different mindset that allowed him to do that. It wasn't had nothing to do with his physical prowess. It had everything to do with the way that he approached it. And I should mention one other thing when we're on the topic of failure, because this was another one of my favorite recommendations from the failure experts, was consider creating a CV of failure. And that is the idea there is that we all see everybody's Instagram fabulous life and it looks like it's they go from peak to peak, but it, we all have failures. And I learned this from a scientist actually who had this amazing CV and she said, but let me walk you through what really happened. <laughs> and then she talked me through like all the fellowships she lost and the professor who told her that she'd never make it and the jobs that she got fired from, like all of the terrible things. And she was the first person to create a CV of failure that I am aware of. And she did so because she felt like, first of all, when she did it, that she felt like it showed her all the things she tried, which in itself was heartening. But again, you talk about data, it gave her really valuable data. 
that data showed her, she started as a biologist and she realized that all of her failures were in the arena of physical biology, as in being in a laboratory and had to manipulate things with your hands. Like she was working with fish and she realized that she was failing and it made her realize where her strength was, was actually computational biology in her head, right? With, with computation. So she actually, it, it helped her to switch her focus and become the great success that she is today. And by the way, she published her CV of failure in Science Magazine, and that went viral because so many people, just like we were talking about with the struggle, so many people responded to her saying, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> I'm not alone. And it's okay to know because I now I know like every, even the people who I worship who look like they're so successful, they fail too. Embrace the struggle. Yes, and totally embrace the struggle. So one last question, if I could add one more. That's because one of my favorite fictional characters is the detective Alex Cross. wonder if you could share one thing you learned from James Patterson, who you write about in the book several times. Yes, yes. So James Patterson is such a great example because I actually met him when I was a very young reporter, more than 30 years ago, I covered the advertising beat for the Wall Street Journal. And I was writing about the Burger King campaign. And I had to go talk to the guy who ran the Burger King account at J. Walter Thompson. And I went to go talk to him and it was James Patterson. And James Patterson was, I sat down with him and he started telling me how he'd been up for hours because he was working on a book because what he really wanted to be was a novelist. And I'm thinking like, yeah, sure, guy, like you and everybody else. And he says, oh, no, I got a book published. And he gives me this book. So I tucked the book away. I, I read it a few weeks later. I don't remember the details, but I did. When I was researching next, I went back and looked at the Kirkus review of that book. And the Kirkus review, the first two words were abysmally dumb. The last two words were deserves drowning. And so... There you go. So James Patterson was a struggling, a struggling writer. And so I went back to him recently when I was reporting the book and he was so gracious. And I said, can you walk me through? How do you get from there to here? And he did. And he literally went through all of the four steps that we talked about. He searched while he was, he was trying to write and not necessarily successfully, but he was honing his craft. He struggled when he started getting his books published, but he was still an ad executive. He was afraid to leave. He really did struggle for quite a few years. He was almost 50 years old by the time he finally quit. And he had published almost a dozen books by that point, but it, it took him quite a while. And his stop moment that led to the pivot was literally on the New Jersey Turnpike. He was coming back from the Jersey Shore on a Sunday night in standstill traffic. And he said he's watching the other side of the road going back to the shore, back to the beach. And he said, the cars are just like, whoosh, whoosh, because there's no traffic. And he said, it just, it was like a thunderbolt. He said, it struck him that he was on the wrong side of the road and he needed to be on the other side going back to the beach. So he went back and he quit and the rest is history. So, but it was fascinating because he was one of the earlier people who I both knew from years ago and who walked me through this, it really helped solidify for me sort of the process. And what was so cool about James Patterson was you might say he's rich and famous, but then when I asked people like, there's a wonderful guy I met who's a telephone repairman who became a shoe designer 
you could not meet two more different men. The telephone repairman who came from this working class background and all he wanted to do was design shoes. And But anyway, he walked me through his transition and it was the same, same set of steps. So it really was fascinating to see how applicable this was across different socio and economic backgrounds, different age groups, different ethnicities. But that process of reinvention is just the same. And there are so many great stories in the book, James Patterson, Chris Donovan, if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, and it's a blend of the stories that really illustrate the process and the research that's behind all that. So Joanne Lippman, thank you very much for taking us through it and for taking time to share your insights. Thank you for having me. It was a fun conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. So it's time for us to compare notes on takeaways. What are some ideas you might want to put into action following today's conversation with Joanne Lippman? Here are three ideas to consider. Number one, where are you in your journey of reinvention? When you think of her four stages, search, struggle, stop, solutions, where are you today? And what will it take to get to the next stage? And keep in mind something that Joanne noted, this is not a quick thing. It's a journey. You'll need to be patient and give yourself proper time. But where are you? in your particular journey. Number two, embrace the struggle. I think this is indeed a place where many people can get stuck. But you want to bring some perseverance to this phase. Know that it's going to take some time. Know it's going to be difficult. But also be aware, as you noted, that you probably are making more progress than you appreciate. What's it going to take for you to get through struggle onto the stop phase? But keep in mind, this phase is where a lot of good things can happen. A lot of key decisions, a lot of key learnings really come during this phase, I believe. And number three, who's going to be your expert companion? You can go it alone, certainly. But I think she made some good points about the value of having someone who can help you reflect, who can help you see other parts of yourself that perhaps you haven't considered in quite some time or just simply don't see. It could be a friend or family member she mentioned, or it could be a professional coach. But who's going to be that person for you? Or are you best suited to go along? But consider this question. Who's going to be your expert companion that can help guide you through these four phases? Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. The mission here is to help you really create a great life after your primary career ends, after you graduate, if you will. And you can find all of our episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com. You can browse all six seasons there. It's a free retirement school, a lot of great guests, and a lot of great topics. Thanks for listening.